that is the brilliance of Burning Man. I knew so many people who were involved with me. Founding a Burning Man, gone every year, and I hadn't gone. But I was so confident I knew what I was going to experience when I went. I wasn't even enthusiastic. I was like, I'm going to go because a friend of mine wants to go, and I'll go with them. I went there, and I was blown away. And I was like, wow, this is so different than what I expected. Um, and that was the magic. The magic was being absolutely surprised by it, and absolutely disarmed by the experience. Meet the people who make Burning Man happen, beyond the desert and around the world. The dreamers and doers, the makers, shakers, and innovators, the artists, activists, freaks, and fools. Burning Man Live. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Burning Man Live. I'm Stuart Mangrum, and my guest today is, uh, I would have to say, an independent scholar and historian of the Burning Man movement. He created the wonderful website trippingly.net, dedicated to, quote, peak experiences, end quote, of both the psychedelic and other varieties, and certainly one of the very best Burning Man and psychedelics-oriented websites. Yes, it is those two things together. It is trippingly.net. My guest is John Turner. Hey, John. Hey, how's it going? It's great to talk to you again. Oh, it's great. Yeah, this site, it goes so deep and in so many interesting directions. I got to ask you, though, at what point did you decide that you were so into Burning Man that you wanted to devote pretty much all of your free time into developing the ultimate Burning Man fan site? Well, um, Trippingly started as a slight dog website. I was at the first English language website that was just kind of a pure advocacy website for psychedelics as opposed to a hard reduction website or a more general website. So I was investing in becoming very passionate about decriminalization psychedelics and developed that website. And then a few years later, I had to start it to become very interested in the history of Burning Man. I had been friends with some of the old school people and been lucky enough to meet Ja Law and Michael Eichel and some of the other founders and was in the social circle with Chicken John and some of these quirky people. And they just had great stories. And I started recording things that I observed. And I started kind of a deep, deep dive of how this all started and why it all started. So you had not been to Burning Man when you started this process. Is that correct? I'd been there for one year, but it really blew me away as it does so many people. But then what happened was this would be a rabbit hole to go down. But there's this guy called David T. Warren. Oh, yes. Flamo. Yeah. Flamo Legrande, or whatever his name was. He's just an interesting character, tragic character, that really brought John Law into the scene. That was a story that started really fascinating me, his personal story. And that was just a little string that I started pulling on and got down to the weeds, as I always do, into the whole birth of Burning Man. Well, that's a really interesting entry point. Dave was a pretty pivotal figure there, not only a, a Suicide Club member, but also I've heard people say that he was really the single-handedly brought fire performance back from the circus. He had been a circus performer, been a carny, right? Right, exactly. It's a carny and a fire performer and a magician and traveling brush salesman and everything else. Uh, where's the long con anymore? I know, right? <laughs> He's just a fascinating guy. And he's really influenced a lot of people, and I think most people have gone to Burning Man and have no idea who this person is. Yeah, and things didn't end really well for Dave 
either, do they? There's no retirement plan for old carnies and troublemakers. He had this very tortured existence. He became uh, very deep in alcohol and became homeless. The real poignant thing about it is he grew up a fairly wealthy, and he grew up in a nice house in the suburbs. And his family estate was kind of donated to the public to be a public park. And he went and lived in that park in a box. That's how he lived his final sort of days, as I understand it. I mean, there are some videos of him that John took talking to him. Being fairly happy, being fairly mentally uh, not there, living in his family's estate in a box. So, wow. You can't, can't beat that for high drama and sadness. So what was your journey that got you to going to Burning Man and then deciding, hey, Burning Man needs like an amateur historian to chronicle all that stuff and to put all that stuff together into a great website. How did that happen? It's a long story, but I had a, a twisted history of growing up as a punk rocker in the 80s in L.A. and going to desert gatherings down south that were art festivals in the desert. Uh, south? Showing up in 1999 in San Francisco, hearing about Burning Man, saying, I'm going to go to that. Did I just see a documentary film about that gathering in the Mojave Desert? The Desolation Center, yeah. When did you start putting this collection of stories together into Trippingly? I was hanging around with the people, the John Laws and the Michael Michaels and the Chicken Johns of the world, and absorbing the culture of Burning Man. Uh huh. I had met Larry Harvey at a, like a social function. I went into a little spiel of my thoughts about community, which was based in doing extreme sports and getting really exhausted, kind of peering humanity back to the core, brain functions and hanging around with other people in that mode. He got very interested in that. He got someone from Brain Ant sending me this DVD of things he thought I'd find interesting. Those DVDs that I, you know, they're home burn DVDs, which included the ABC 1997 Nightlight Special. I think his own art film he made back then. There was a couple different things. And those things just kind of stuck with me. I had Trippingly as a website already. It was already a really quite big psychedelic website back then. I started just kind of writing things that I was finding interesting about Burning Man. And I just went down the rabbit hole of thinking about what happened here, why it happened, how Burning Man happened. And that was how it all started. The history section is pretty rich and pretty interesting. You've got a super complete collection. You've got all the founders in here. We'll say, you know, I've always found you as being one of the interesting people because you sort of have these archetypes of Larry on one side, who is uh, Larry, I don't know, I, I don't know to characterize him necessarily, and then the cacophonies on the other side, who are these kind of punk rock characters. And Larry was kind of a big word intellectual, and the cacophonists were kind of pranksters. And you were always a bridge between the two of them. You had brought this kind of intellectual firepower to the table that the cacophonists had. But you also had some alignment with Larry. You were sort of interesting how you filled the role in bridging those gaps. What was your experience there? Uh, by the way, I think you're doing a better job at interviewing me than I am of you. So I am an interviewer. <laughs> yeah. When two interviewers interview each other, yes, it turns into a, a duel of microphones. For me, Burning Man and Cacophony were the same thing. I joined the Cacophony Society, and the first event I went to was Burning Man. I met Michael Michael, I met Danger Ranger before I met Larry Harvey. The intellectualization of Burning Man is an interesting subject. Larry was always trying to search for what the deeper meaning was. But in a sense, it was also a lot of obfuscation, because ultimately, we both agreed, and I still insist, that 
Burning Man is such a personal experience that the meaning has to come from your own direct experience of it. I don't want to tell you what it is because that'll interfere with how you live it. Well, like great songwriters leave a lot of blanks in the song for you to interpret, right? It's not about what they're telling you the messages is what the canvas is. And Burning Man, I think it's best, is not a blank canvas, like canvas with some borders and some maybe numbers to color in. But it seemed like Larry was pretty insistent on giving a philosophical framework to it, to put meaning to it, to write about it in certain terms, whereas some of the people I think were looking at more as an adventure. For me, it's always been about the the mystery. It's a place to encounter the unexpected. And the less it becomes that, the less interesting it is. If you knew exactly what was going to happen, why would you go? Right? So that notion of experiencing something that's very unlike anything that you've been through before, which actually I think is going to be a little bridge into psychedelic experiences here, right? It's it's that notion of awe and wonder and otherness that can knock you out of your your traces, so to speak, and make you really experience the world in a, in a more direct way. At least that's what I've gotten out of it, personally. What was most amazing to me about Burning Man was having no one about it and knowing the people who formed it and were involved in it for so long, how shocked I was when I showed up. How absolutely different the experience was than what I expected. And it was magical. It was an absolute surprise. It sounds like you were talking to a lot of people who had stopped going a long time before and had developed some rationales for that too, right? Yeah, both ways though. Some of my favorite people though were the people who kept going. Like Philip Rosedale from Second Life fame was one of those guys who was like, every year is the best year. That's what I believe. Last year wasn't my best year, but I hope next year will be. Yeah, I don't think last year was anyone's best year. <laughs> yeah, it was It was lovely. It was great to be back, and that's the best thing you can say about it, right? No, I got COVID halfway through, too, so that was great. It made it even warmer for me. Yeah. Shelf in place until the burn got out, got out when I could. It was bad. It was rough. You know. But uh, you're not dissuaded. You're, you're going back this year. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. This year and every year, I bet. A lifer. Yeah, I- so you still consider yourself a student of the culture? Are you interested in expanding on the historical database that you've begun? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I just realized I missed like that email from John Law with his typical many pages of comments on something I'd written. John really likes historical detail the way I do, really likes the minutia. And so once I get those little things, I'm like, oh, it's fascinating that you remember that little tiny bit of who, who was on stage first and how this happened. And that's the kind of stuff I really like, too. I get very obsessive about that stuff. So when I get like a little prod like that, and then I go, oh, it brings out all these little threads I want to start pulling out. Well, why did that happen? How did that band end up there? It really is exciting for me. I'm not even sure that my memory is, is any better than anybody else's. There's one article in here that I wrote that I don't remember writing, that it says that I wrote it in 1993, but I hadn't ever been to Burning Man uh, until 1993, so I don't know, man. <laughs> We're getting to the point where I think it's good to triangulate off of each other's memories, right? Yeah. There were a lot of ideas that came out of late nights at 1907 Golden Gate that were just sort of like that. And I don't think getting past that circle to an individual is really going to be all that fruitful. When I asked them, they all just say the same thing. The idea came up when we were all together in 1907 with Miss P, and that uh, most evenings there was a bit of a soiree over there, 
the importance of that little kitchen, literally and figuratively, to cacophony can't really be overstated. There was a lot of ridiculousness that gained traction there and turned into reality. One of the things in the article I didn't remember writing, it was something about that cacophony would uh, make you turn your words into action. You couldn't just sit there and, and mouth off anymore about, you know, wouldn't it be great if people did this? It was the origin of participation as an ethic, right, as a driving ethic. Now, anybody can talk a good game. Anybody can come up with crazy ideas, but you got to put yourself out there on the line and yeah. throw a note in rough draft and see if anybody shows up. Absolutely. It was cool, like, how many different ideas came together that led to Bad Day at Blackrock, zone trip number four. These artists out in the desert before that, that Jerry and others went out and saw on Blackrock Desert and brought those ideas back to the Golden Gate House and it all was coming together. I want to talk to you, though, about how you reconcile stories that as people get older and start to remember differently... I could quibble all day with fact-checking on some of your stories. I don't want to go into the errata. Usually the people will QA your work, as we say, right? You'll get comments from people. But how do you reconcile conflicting stories? Where do you find the one historical truth to write a history? How do you reconcile the Jerry James story versus the Larry Harvey story, the Larry versus John story? Well, it's a great question because when I was early in the process, one of the things that was great about this website was I got to meet everybody and I got to talk to these people. There's a couple things that start giving tells of what probably happened. One is you kind of get credibility, you know, you kind of get people who are a little bit more gilding the lily or still have a very good memory, or you can sort of say, sourcing agendas. A lot of times I found contemporaneous like videos, people had home videos of people talking about things in the nineties. And then those same people would tell a story very different. 10 years later, 20 years later, either intentionally because they wanted a little different narrative or people forget and they reconstruct things, you know? Well, they say we forget every time we remember. Every time you unpack a memory, put it away again, it goes away a little bit differently. Do you ever experience the pronoun shift where the we kind of turns into an I and people kind of, you know, rearrange the contributions of others and their relative worth? I think I experience in Burning Man the opposite more, where people probably deserve more credit and they turn it into a we. Oh, okay. Because a lot of this was a collective effort, and a lot of the little minutiae that I talk about probably aren't that relevant. And there are actually some fairly modest people involved in this whole endeavor who like to spread credit around. So I see it the other way, actually, more. It's kind of a lovely thing. Yeah, and talking about stories mutating over time, you go into some pretty great depth on the origin story of Burning Man. And Larry Harvey, whether it was about a lost love or whether it wasn't, you're absolutely right. His perspective on that changed a lot, I think. Not in a continuous curve. You talk about the difference between motivation and meaning. Larry not wanting people to confuse motivation and meaning. What does that mean? Right. I am convinced I know the story of the founding of Burning Man from Larry's motivations and kind of what happened. And here's what I think, why Larry changed his story. I know Larry Harvey was struggling, he was in a dark place in his life in the mid-80s. And in 1986, he and Jerry James went out to the beach and burnt that effigy. I am confident that was motivated by the depression he was suffering. I'm confident it was motivated by 
this woman, Mary, who was doing burns on the beach, I'm confident was motivated by happy memories of a romantic excursion to that same location. And she said, let's go do this as a way to spend the day. After that, what happened was community was built. He saw what Larry's brilliance was, part of his brilliance was he saw the potential for community. He burnt that little 10-footer or whatever it was the first year, effigy, and he saw people gathering around and he saw some significance and then he brought something back bigger the next year and he saw a bigger crowd. The reason why he did it the first time was it was absolutely irrelevant to him, I believe. It filled the gap in his life and it gave him meaning at a time where he needed meaning. So to ascribe it to a lost love or to a bad breakup, what was relevant to him was building a family and building meaning. What do you think, Stuart? You know, it's funny for us to ascribe motivations to anything that we do, particularly in a random creative act. It's probably easier to go back and assign a motivation to it post hoc than it is to figure it out in the time that you're doing it. I didn't meet Larry until 1993. And by then, when we when I joined forces with him and starting to talk about the event, we were very clearly in agreement that we wanted to intentionally not tell people what Burning Man meant, that the individual experience was fundamental to it, and that the more information that we provided to people, the less mystery and awe and discovery there would be in it, the less of them there would be in it. So that's my story. <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. And that is the brilliance of Burning Man. As I said, I knew so many people who were involved with the founding of Burning Man had gone every year, and I hadn't gone. But I was so confident I knew what I was going to experience when I went. I wasn't even enthusiastic. I was like, I'm going to go because a friend of mine wants to go, and I'll go with them. I went there, and I was blown away. And I was like, wow, this is not what I expected. This is so different than what I expected. Um, and that was the magic. The magic was being absolutely surprised by it, and absolutely disarmed by the experience. Well, here's to having a little bit more awe and wonder and mystery in the world. The more that I think about it, that's just the, really at the heart of it, right? It's not what you expect, and it doesn't map to any of those expectations that we all carry around so dearly for us of, of what's going to be, what's going to happen next and next and next. You know, there's a phrase that I always heard in Burning Man, but I, I hear it in psychedelics a lot. I hate it in psychedelics, but I love it in Burning Man. The quiet doesn't give you the experience you want. It gives you the experience you need. I think that's really true. People also say psychedelics don't give you the experience you want because it's the experience you need. Ah, you know, it doesn't map as well there. Well, yeah, there's the set setting and dosage model too, right? What mindset do you bring to it? Black Rock City can be a great setting for a successful psychedelic experience, but what did you bring with you? What's already operating in your mindset? Uh, speaking of psychedelics, that is the other side of Tripping Lee, and you mentioned that's its original purpose. Tell me what it means to you. What is your career like as a psychedelic advocate? That can describe a lot of roles in the world. What section of that do you find you're adding the most value to that cause? Well, I don't know about adding value, but I can tell you a bit about what my day-to-day -day life is because it's really all over the map. I started out as someone who was taken aback by how effective psychedelics were at stealing my old trauma. I took psychedelics the first time with a friend thinking this is going to be a fun experience, and it turned out to be a fun experience, but it uncovered a whole lot of things that were in my head that I didn't even know. And so I started using this and finding it very healing 
for me. And that became why I started writing the website and advocating for decriminalization in Oregon. And I then became active on the business side of it as well, investing in and advising venture capital funds and for-profit and non-profit companies in space. I was a lawyer for 20 years. I really don't work for a living anymore. I just don't want to work. I want to do fun things. So my job is really pontification. Hey, wait a minute. What's the IRS job code for that? Because I should probably put it on my tax return too. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I kind of sit on conference calls and try to say wise things now and then and kind of bring in some experience as a lawyer and some experience as a psychonaut and whatever I can. I think I'm a little bit of an odd mix because I had such a traditional career, really. So a traditional corporate lawyer in Silicon Valley at the biggest firm, and the, the, probably the most conservative firm, at the same time where I was very deeply involved with psychedelics and other drugs and compounds. But my day's fun. I talk a lot and think big thoughts. So that's a great second career story. You leaned into your, your freak and brought it to the forefront. What really moved me was I, I had personal healing in psychedelics, and I got lucky. The legend in the field, Amanda Fielding, who was really the person who gave birth to a lot of the, the science behind what we're seeing now in psychedelics, the treatment of people with resistant depression, she happened to reach out to me. You know, it's kind of like a legend tapped me on the shoulder, and you don't say no to that. I just got pulled into the deepest of the pools immediately with these OG people and psychedelics and these big thinkers. And I looked around and said, how, you know, how the hell did I end up in this room? This is a great room to be in right now. I just keep tap dancing. I hope no one notices. All right. I worked at Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, which had kind of invented all the cool drugs that popularized MDMA. And Alexander Shulgin was really kind of the legend. His wife, Anne Shulgin, and him created most of these really interesting compounds. The Institute continues on. It's out there developing new drugs. It's a different world now. In the old days, Sasha would invent something, try it with his taster group, and then publish it openly. And now, you know, it's a big business, so people are doing this commercially for FDA approval. But there's lots of new compounds being developed, some for just pure therapeutic purposes, and some are pretty interesting compounds on the subjective effects it have. So, you mean recreationally? I'm a big fan of recreational uh, usage of drugs, but most of the stuff, honestly, because of the, the finances now, is that the stuff is being done for big bunch of commercial purposes. Um, some of it obviously has some really cool side effects, like you know LSD, for example. But there's also ones that are being developed to have no subjective effect, and that's the appeal. A psychedelic that you don't feel anything but have the underlying uh, mechanisms working where you have uh, neuroplasticity is very appealing. So you have people who don't want to have a psychedelic experience, but have brain damage, traumatic brain injury, other things, hopefully benefit from this kind of work. And hopefully it will blow some people's minds and some cool other stuff too. Tell me more about that. I thought pretty much they always had the subjective effects, so to speak. You know, Sasha developed 500 compounds that we know about. A lot of them had no subjective effect and were kind of put aside. But a lot of them are doing things at a subconscious level or at a physiological level. We've obviously recently learned what we always suspected is that these are probably very beneficial to brain structures. Now the world's in the process of investigating what these compounds are going to do. But you can imagine if you were looking at psilocybin as being something for treatment-resistant depression, 
you know, psilocybin experience, you imagine mushroom experience to the last five hours can also be very psychologically engaging. Therapists love that to be shorter, two-hour experience. Therapists love to have that available to people who can't or don't want to have a traditional psychedelic experience. So you start playing with molecules and you start trying to make those experiences shorter. We're finding out whether or not subjective psychedelic trips are going to have the same benefits as classic psychedelic trips. That's a hot area of research, a hot area of finance. Well, certainly a lot of psychedelic research informally has been conducted out in the Black Rock Desert. People talk about it being a transformative experience. How many people do you think really are saying that they, they, uh, they had a great trip out there? They had a great psychedelic trip at Burning Man? I would say a lot. I mean, Burning Man has been described as so many things. Is it a trip without drugs? It's a trip, but I mean, it's different, right? So sure, Burning Man can be magically transformative and wonderful, you know, without any tox station whatsoever. I was totally non-toxicated the last trip. And it was still, I had this amazing moments. But it's probably not a psychedelic experience. Well, I've done it both ways. <laughs> and uh, it's been a long time. I wish I had some of this great information back when I was a punk high school kid, just deciding uh, where to split that four-way pain of Mr. Natural to divide that between three people. The dosage guidelines, too, which I wish I had known. Oh, religious patterns or iconography, what, is, what does that mean when people report that? I have a vision in my head. But what does that mean in the literature? Let me tell you about my personal experience instead. People often have uh, religious experience or perceived religious visions. I was absolutely an atheist before I started taking psychedelics. I don't know where I am now, but let's say I was absolutely an atheist. And I took my first high-dose psychedelic, and suddenly I saw Islamic iconography everywhere. I saw mystical images. And in my very psychedelic state, I was like, wow. I've been on the wrong course here. And I really was kind of shaken about how strong this religious energy was for me. And then I came down to my non-toxicated state and started processing it. What did that mean? Did I really have visions of, of God before me? And then it gets to the debate that people often have, which is maybe what we are doing is creating a religious state, or maybe the people who created religious iconography and images were experiencing transcendental states through not psychedelics or through meditation through deprivation and we're seeing the same kind of visions doesn't answer the question whether there's a great creator or not it just says where is this image is coming from is it somehow imbued in our brains is somehow revealed by psychedelics or by starvation or whatever so what came first is not clear but certainly the visions of iconography are very common for people to see the same geometric mandalas and and all that when I was a punk kid, we used to call them the Aztec patterns. Maybe it was growing up in L.A., but they uh, they reminded me and my friends a lot of some of the iconography you'd see in Mesoamerican pyramids. People take high doses of DMT and often have like little space gremlins whispering in their ears, or robots, or whatever it is. It's a little different signal. If you have a drug you're going down, you might have a different kind of machine elves, right, popping up. For some reason, lots of people who go to Burning Man are very interested in psychedelic research, psychedelic advocacy. In fact, our uh, my friend Ray Allen, who was our uh, general counsel until very recently, just took a job as the head lawyer over at MAPS. <laughs> there does seem to be some connection there. And why not? You know, it's I've over the years, I've tripped in a lot of 
a lot of places, but uh, I have to say the desert out there, particularly when you have some space and a moonless night and a lot of sky above your head. Not that that ever happens during Burning Man anymore, but uh, that could be one of the more uh, soul-opening sorts of experiences. And do you think there's something magical about Black Rock Desert itself? I mean, I really am one of those people who believes in the magical vortex of Black Rock. It moves me anytime I'm near it. In your uh, ongoing Burning Man research, have you ever been really surprised by anything that you found out? I like the personal stories. I really like soap operas more than I like historical stories. So I've heard these personal stories and people open up. One thing I found is when you really get into the weeds and you bring people back to their childhood or to their upbringing, they start remembering things and then they just start open up. They also have the psychedelics that open up to you when they find out you're in psychedelics professionally. So I've had these people tell me these stories that you know, they've said they haven't talked about in 30 or 40 years. Some of them were quite shocking. One of them was quite shocking, you know, but it was so personal that it wasn't newsworthy. It wasn't relevant to the website. Yeah, that is a dilemma. Burning Man is a million very personal stories, and sharing a personal story involves a measure of trust that can't ever be assumed. The story of Jerry James and Larry Harvey is a really interesting story. There's this interesting interplay between friendship and then professional betrayal and personal feelings, and then a beautiful attempt at reconciliation at the end of Larry's life, where things were under the bridge a little bit. And then Larry had the stroke. Jerry James, one of the founders of Burning Man, essentially, reached out two days before Larry's stroke to get together, and it just never happened. But there was a reconciliation there that was kind of beautiful. And those are the personal stories I love. That is poignant. You know, some of these relationship stories, which will probably never be reconciled, like the John Law and Larry Harvey story. You know, I, I wrote a little bit of a Burning Man history for new staff onboarding. And when I got to that part, I realized that the only really way to express that relationship was operatically. So I pulled in one of the arias from uh, How to Survive the Apocalypse, the Burning Opera, which is the showdown between the Larry character and the John character arguing about the future of the event. It is the stuff of high drama or opera. I think the two people are so different. It's amazing they spent time together. They both have lofty ideals, but they're very different human beings. I met them on the same day in the offices of Central Sign over in Oakland, and uh, John and I have done a lot of adventuring outside of Burning Man and uh, had a lot of great times together. I wouldn't never uh, downplay it. You've talked about Larry being the intellectual. Oh, Larry's a form of intellectual. <laughs> He's a big word, intellectual. John can think his way out of a paper bag, too. And have some very strong opinions about things. John is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. This form of raw intelligence I most respect. One of my favorite human beings on this planet. Well, uh, Burning Man as we know it today certainly would not exist without uh, either of them, right? Without that interplay and without that tension, that dynamic, we wouldn't be where we are. Burning Man would have ended in 1996. It was a Kajar, I believe. It would have ended in 1990, you know, if, if Larry hadn't run into the right people. You know, I don't think he ever really got over that. I don't want to go too far into the weeds on this, but uh, Larry, Larry didn't want it to be a cacophony event. He wanted it to be his event. 
But this is the kind of stuff I love is you look at motivation and Larry's motivations were critical for the event to survive. And look what we got. I'm very grateful it happened. A lot of people are. Yeah. But uh, it's complicated. <laughs> so what else do you want to talk about, John? The Philosophical Center. How did the hell did you end up there? That is a very Larry Harvey idea. This is not something I would see you quickly sign me up for. Am I totally off base there, or where did this, how did this all play out? Well, I'm no philosopher, John, and I never pretended to be. I'm more of a, I like to think I'm more of a practical thinker and a storyteller. Yeah, it was definitely Larry's thing. The story is that when the uh, nonprofit was being put together, which was the beginning of Larry's succession plan, right? He didn't want it to turn into your generic nonprofit board run, whatever. He wanted to make sure that those principles were carried forward into the future and used, if not to shape and guide policy, at least as kind of a guardrail on policy. So he referred to the Philosophical Center as the conscience and collective memory of Burning Man. Conscience in the sense of holding on to our core values, which by the way are all cacophony values, except for civic responsibility, which I'll still hold as child of necessity. And the collective memory, somebody's going to hold the stories. You know, ultimately in X years from now, all that's going to be left are the stories of what happened out there, right? Of the people who uh, who went out there and changed it and were changed by it. That's my passion. I've always loved a good story. And when Larry passed away, I did not hesitate to step into that, to hold that space, hold that portfolio. One thing I'll say for sure is the whole idea of themes in Burning Man. I really appreciated the themes you brought out post Larry's death. I think they've been great. Really? I did not like the themes of Burning Man from day one. But all of a sudden, you started doing it. I tried so hard to talk Larry out of it. Really? Okay. I'm not the only one here. It seemed like a little cheesy. We heckled him, heckled him out of it, but he just kept on doing it. Well, thank you. I... I'd like to say it's fun. <laughs> it's really hard and uh, really lonely work. You know, when we used to do it together, it was fun and painful and nerve-wracking. Our styles in general were very, 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 very different. You know, a lot of artists are going to do whatever the hell they want to do, and that's fine, too. We always say that. But particularly for people who are newer to creative pursuits, to have something to kind of pin their star on and say, all right, we're going to go in the direction of uh, furries, for instance. Oh, that's the next year I heard. Is that leaking right now? That's great. Fantastic. No, it's this year. It's Well, that's the shorthand version that Animalia is really the year of the furry. I have no problem with that because I actually have great respect for anyone who can dress up in a fur suit, dance around 110 degrees. You're an athlete. You're, that, should be, that should be an Olympic event. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny you talk about Larry's writing. I'm one of the things that when I was first working on the website and digging through some of the old writings. You know, Larry would kind of interview himself under his nom de plume, Daryl Van Ray. You also used it, right? Yeah. Early on, as I was Tom Sawyered into the Burning Man world, it started with publishing the newspaper out on, on site. Then it was, uh, oh, you know, we do this other newsletter during the year. It's called Building Burning Man. And he had already used the Daryl Van Ray thing because he thought it was shamefully egotistical to just, you know, flat-out interview himself. 
It just felt weird. So he created this anagrammatic reporter persona, Daryl Van Ray. And then I just kind of stepped in naturally. It's just like, all right, I'll write some questions. So my questions became Daryl Van Ray. And then after Larry passed, the first theme I wrote was published as Daryl Van Ray because it just seemed too soon. That was the first time I was confident it was you also using that. There was just a very different writing style. A lot of us came out of that zine world, right? The late pre-internet era, that's how I fell into the Cacophony Society, was swapping zines with Rough Draft. A lot of the people that came out there in the way back were zine publishers that I was connected to. So the monks, the folks from Big Rig Industries, from Chuck Magazine, from uh, Card House. In uh, 96, actually, I, because I was running the radio station and the webcast and the newspaper and uh, wanted to have a life, I just basically had a, an editor of the day for the three days of publication, and they were three of my best scene publisher friends. Those issues are all still on the site. I got them all digitized. So I still have fun going back and look at those. I love reading these old issues, and it puts you back in the, you know, what it was like to be in 1993. There's just very different attitudes, like Church of the Sun Genius, all these kind of things that were floating around that led to the Cacophony Society, that kind of, that state of mind, you know, the Suicide Club, the Cacophony Society, this kind of zany fun that people were having and zine culture pushing it. It's a good trip down memory lane. It's true. There was, you know, San Francisco in the 90s, was the intersection of a lot of creative forces, a lot of economic forces, too. It was still possible for people to work a part-time job, but still afford to live in a reasonably good style. It's an interesting journey. It's an interesting journey. Let me ask a question. Why didn't you come back? You left, like, in 96, right? And then you started getting pulled back in, assumed by Larry. Yeah, Larry called me kind of out of the blue in, like, 2012? He was writing the cargo cult theme, and he wanted me to help. I was at a point in my life when I had some time on my hands, and even though I'd sort of taken John's side in the big divorce, uh, I'd stayed friends with Larry, and so and I came in to work on the theme, and one thing led to another. It was the old Tom Sawyer. Give him a little bit of worm and then rope him in. Next thing you know, I've got a desk, and I'm commuting to San Francisco. I'm not sure how it happened. I think a lot of people have the story about Burning Man. They don't know how else they end up working there. I think enthusiasm is the common answer, you know. It seems to be a little a little cultural uh, magnet that pulls people in, pulls them back just so they thought they were out. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that for years you were a vicarious burner, that you experienced Burning Man culture through your friends who were some of the early organizers. It was real freaking busy. Like you going to the desert for a week seemed like a lot of work. So it was just not practical. I was going up to Nevada City and hanging out with the founders at the hotel party they were doing there every year. And when I was meeting, hanging out with key people from the old school, hearing their adventures, I felt like, oh, I get it. And then I went, I was like, fuck, this is not what I thought. It's so much more interesting. And it doesn't get any more convenient. Burning Man is still. Inconvenient and uh, potentially dangerous. Yeah, it's certainly not Disney World, despite what some people say. Disney World won't let you die of heat stroke. 
Well, I also like Burning Man. You'll be climbing some art, it's, you know, piece of art, and you'll like to see blood stains. You go, okay, well, I better be careful of that. You know, there's no warning side other than like human flesh. That is probably pretty sharp. That's keeping it real. Lizard brain on high alert. Outstanding. So, in addition to all the great historical content on Tripping Lee about Burning Man, there's also a whole lot of practical tips. We could easily spend an hour just going through that, but maybe you could just sort of pick a favorite tip for each of these categories. You ready? Yeah, I'll do my best. Okay. Tickets. Tickets. Um, Be prepared for disappointment. Join a good camp. Be part of the community. Do your best to get the lottery and believe you're going to get that ticket and tell them when you want a ticket. The tickets always seem to come through in the end. And hopefully not a counterfeit ticket, because those exist. I know. I'm sad. Don't buy them off of eBay. Do not buy tickets off of eBay, no matter how good they look. I've never gotten a ticket to the website, you know. By the way, Stuart, I'm looking for a ticket if you have an extra one. You know someone does. Or anyone's listening has an extra ticket. I'm sorry? I I could use an extra ticket. Sorry, Vav. I think John's connection is going dead. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, how about uh, packing? Some people refer to Burning Man as recreational moving. Got a good packing tip for us? You know, I think there's very different games if you're doing an RV pack versus a tent pack. If this is your first burn, you don't need to bring nearly as much clothing as you think you do. And then probably bring extra water and things that you can gift to other people around because people are going to run out of water. People are going to run out of food. So bring some extras of those kind of things. Batteries and cigarettes, even if you don't smoke. Batteries are a good thing. It's like prison, you know? Batteries and cigarettes. Um, Okay, how about food? I love to eat out there, and I hate to cook out there, so what do you do? I make a lot of quesadillas. That's a real easy thing to do. Yes! And I just go out to Thai restaurants. I get meals from my favorite Indian Thai curry places, and I freeze them, and I microwave them. It's delicious, and it's so easy to do. And if you can eat it up, it's no work at all. I think quesadilla is the champion food. Try this next time. Pre-make them, freeze them. You can just thaw them on your dashboard of your car. There's a hot, piping hot, cheesy snack for you on your dashboard by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I usually freeze some pizza as well. You can eat it anywhere between cold to melted or whatever. (laughs) Easy stuff to do. Like a pizza sickle? Yeah, it never tastes bad. You're an RV camper. You got a good RV tip? I have a very, very clean RV. And the way I do it is I put rosin paper down on the floors and I change it out every two days. It's just like craft paper, the brown craft paper I roll? I got this like brown paper taped down with some painter's tape. And you keep changing that stuff. It just keeps things clean. I'll tell you my guilty thing I do, but it's so great. I bring a humidifier. So we walk into my RV. Even if it's warm, it's still a little bit humid. It keeps your nose nice and breathable and your skin better. This is our little $20 humidifier. Moist and muddy. (laughs) Moist and muddy. How about getting there and dodging all the potential hazards of the road? Well, thank goodness I drive from Portland, Oregon, not from LA or San Francisco. So I can tell you that drive from Portland is real easy. You'd see a couple burners on the way, and there's no traffic, and I can time it where I can get to the gate exactly when it opens, so there's usually not a line at all. If you're from Portland, you don't need any tip. 
or Seattle, it's just an easy drive. If you're from LA, well, you, you know, move. <laughs> okay, great. Everybody in LA, you heard it here, just freaking move. But not to Portland, please. Well, that's already happened. Uh, getting through the various roadblocks, not roadblocks, but, you know, speed traps or obscured license plate traps. Yeah, there's an article on the website all about that. The police look for any excuse to pull you over, depending on what you look like. As a psychedelic advocate, believe it or not, I am actually a target of law enforcement from time to time. So when I'm driving my RV, it is not obviously a Burning Man RV. I don't have a big man taped on the outside of my RV. I put the bikes inside, and it kind of looks like an old dude driving an RV. I'd be careful. Don't block your license plates. Make sure that the license plates are lit up. And never consent. Never consent. Yes, there are articles on the website. I do not consent to the search. As one old freak to another, that's that's almost worth a tattoo on your arm. I do not consent. Actually, there's a whole uh, section of the site on drugs at Burning Man. What's your drug tip, Mr. Psychedelic Advocate? Don't take drugs from strangers. Don't give drugs to strangers. Test everything you take and bring your own supply. Bring the very minimum that you're going to personally use. So if you do get stopped or whatever, you you have a something that's not worth anyone's trouble. Use moderation. I think Burning Man's a place where the police won't bother you. Unless you're kind of creating a scene. But if you create a scene, you've seen it. We've seen it where 20 cops come out of nowhere and descend on somebody. So be thoughtful and pace yourself. All right. My guest today has been John Turner. His fabulous website is trippingly.net. Thank you so much for being on the show, John. Thank you. I will see you in the dust. Burning Man Live is a 100% decommodified production of the Philosophical Center of the nonprofit Burning Man Project, made possible by the generosity of listeners, perhaps like you, who kick down a few bucks now and then at donate.burningman.org. Thanks to all the unusual suspects, Michael, Vav, DJ Toil, Action Girl, K-Bot, Deets, Christy, Not Brinkley, and, and as always, thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry.